Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 62, the one about branding tricks with magazines, blah blah car, microphones and the King's Speech. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing and finance podcast and the author of Cats, Mats and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, my co-host is also a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much, Roger. And thank you to everyone who helped to celebrate episode 60 a few weeks ago. We sent a message on the socials, Roger, and we got some lovely, warm, friendly messages back. Yeah, it was great to hear from everybody. And, you know, 60 episodes has gone by in such a flash, but we're glad that people keep tuning in and people keep sending us really good feedback. It keeps us going, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, we, you and I have fun, and this is like the highlight of, of my week every single time. But it is nice to know that we're making a difference and, and bringing a bit of light entertainment and, of course, knowledge uh, to the world of marketing out there. Certainly. And do please keep sending your feedback to us and your suggestions and ideas for films that we can talk about and tech and apps that we can review. For everyone listening and watching, Roger has selected this week's movie. And what a selection. The King's Speech, released in 2010-11 across different territories. And one that actually has a wonderful, wonderful parallel to the world of being a content creator and public speaker. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that anybody who has to stand up in front of an audience, large or small, can learn from this film. (laughs) And I've certainly learned a few things about um, viral marketing from the research that we've done. Super. So we're going to start, as we've done so far for 62 episodes, with In the News. The wait is over. The all-new Netflix hub has been launched on Spotify. TV and film bus will enjoy official soundtracks, playlists, and podcasts, including behind-the-scenes looks at the creation of musical scores. Wow. Well, Instagram announced that the first tools for parents will roll out early next year, allowing them to see how much time their teenagers spend on Instagram and set time limits. TikTok entertains its users with a two-day shopping event hosted by TV presenter Rylan Clark-Neal, during which viewers were able to purchase featured products directly from the TikTok platform. Now, the UK ad industry is expected to have experienced the highest growth among major markets this year, with a forecast of 35.7%, with digital media, not surprised there, capturing 78% of the UK's advertising spend. And the departure of Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, is still being debated across all media outlets. Is it a sign of a change of direction for Twitter, or much worse, a sign of the imminent burst of the social media bubble? According to Marketing Week, Pepsi has launched the Mic Drop, a collection of nearly 2,000 free non-fungible tokens, the infamous NFTs, to celebrate the brand history in music and pop culture. Airbnb has rented the house from the original film, Home Alone. The lucky family spent an evening with actor Devin Rattray, who originally played Buzz McAllister, Kevin's older brother, and took part in activities inspired by the film. 
Wow, well, listen to this. The actor Ryan Reynolds has a LinkedIn profile in which he's promoting his many business ventures and his skills, including writing, rewriting, tweeting, mixing cocktails, back-end engineering for software platforms, and watching lower-tier Welsh football matches. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff, great stuff. So what's really interested you this week out of oh, all of this? Right. So well, let's begin with the heavy one, Jack Dorsey living as CEO. That's his, his second departure, but this one feels like uh, it means it. And people have been asking the question whether his departure is symbolising the fact that he himself doesn't believe in the core values and the message of social media. That is to say, social media as an experiment has gone wrong and we'll, we'll never get it back on track? Or is it simply that Twitter finally will find its raison d'etre and maybe a new leader will break through what is essentially still the most, um, I don't know, appreciated social network, but the least used as well in numbers, certainly? Yeah, I mean, I feel that Twitter's actually been doing some pretty good things over the last year to 18 months. I mean, they've tried things. They tried stories, didn't they? But they were they were happy to ha- put their hands up admit, and admit this isn't working for our platform. So they ditched them. Um, you know, they try, they've tried, they're trying out Twitter spaces, and, and that seems to be working. And they seem to me to be listening to customers and trying things out with Twitter Blue we talked about a few weeks ago. So... I actually think that out of the social media platforms, to me, Twitter is is the least bad in terms of going wrong. Now, a lot of people, you know, I'd still hear people say that Twitter is a cesspit and you get a lot of, of, of um, polarized views about politics and things like that. But if you try, if you keep out of that cesspit part of it, I, I actually still think, well, personally, for me, Twitter is the best of the social media platforms and doesn't feel as as negative and polluted and as, as, as intrusive as, say, Facebook is. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they will settle or maybe they'll go off in a completely different direction. I mean, this idea of the, you know, the social media bubble about to burst. I mean, for you and I, and in terms of the work that we do as consultants, speakers and trainers, is this something that you you think could happen? Like literally, that the whole thing, like I said, is and was a project gone wrong, and and people would just leave on mass, or is it just you know they it's going to stay be part of our lives, but there's going to be a positive evolution. I mean, can we can any of us even conceive of the world without any social media now? I mean. It would leave a massive hole in pretty much everything, wouldn't it? I mean, you say our role as marketers. You know, so many companies, small companies, now rely upon social media as a way of getting their message out. If that was suddenly taken away, we would be going back to the 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 uh, the days when it was only those big companies that had massive massive budgets that can afford to place adverts in publications all over the world or TV ads. If you if you if you cut out this communications um, platform, I think it would be a, almost like a return to the dark ages to a certain extent. But that said, you know, from the personal point of view, from the actual uh, raison d'etre of all of these platforms, the sociability of it, forget the advertising, just the sociability, maybe that's the thing that's broken to a certain extent. I think I don't think marketers are to blame for the, the rot that's set in. I think it's maybe the the policing of the platforms that has allowed some of the vocal minorities to to actually turn parts of it quite sour 
And to your point, governments and authorities are mm. taking actions and, and putting things mm. in place across Europe, across the US and Australia. Uh, for me, I, I think you're right. For social media, which came about in the mid-2000s as an um, additional tool in the arsenal of being a small business, is almost the only solution out there that met the promise of the internet. Do you remember the, when mm. it all started in the 90s, we were promised this idea of a level playing field. We were promised yeah. this idea of you can be a small business, but you can compete against the large organizations. And actually, it took the social networks to really meet that um, aspiration. So I, I would agree with you. I think for me, what is nice about Twitter, I was asking a friend of mine, Natalie Emene, who is a social media consultant, and she was saying that it is also still to this day the only platform where you can mix mix professional um, life and let's say personal life where on one day you can talk about you know, the wonders of internet marketing and the other your favorite film and on twitter it kind of works whereas other platforms that people can think of usually you've got to stick to almost the accepted kind of um, you know boundaries in terms of topics and subject matter and, and to this day it still remains a very very popular social messaging platform people will dm each other uh, on twitter and you know i've also praised twitter with the advance of spaces the audio live streaming and how swift they've been responding and uh, updating the, the platform so I'm excited. I mean, it's sad that someone who literally pretty much invented Twitter with support from others feels that he can no longer stay. But um, I think they have a positive future ahead of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, last week, Pascal, I'm, uh, I was at our annual protection review conference and we used Twitter as the sort of the, the chat function for everybody who was at the conference and we had the tweet we had a screen up on on the uh, big screen of tweets and we encouraged everybody to use the hashtag and it absolutely worked you know it, even if it had been encapsulated for only the people in the room the functionality worked as it turned out a boring old financial services conference managed to trend on Twitter in the United Kingdom because it was so interactive so it has its absolute perfect plus points as well as its negatives no super no you're right this week's the news items are so good and exciting but we can't mm. go through all of them so i'm going to pick on you mentioned advertising a moment ago isn't that fascinating that the uk is always seemingly leading the way when it comes to ad spend in the, the world um, there's clearly uh, that relationship between the creators of advertising the channels distribution and of course the audience but of course as you and i've mentioned for the part the best part of 12 months now of course digital media has been the, taking the lion's share of the spend this year as well yeah and again it reinforces my argument that we should stop talking about digital media because pretty much all of it is digital now i really don't think we need to have this constant almost alluded to difference between digital being modern and old being you know traditional print tv whatever it is marketing is marketing and the tactics of delivering the communications are pretty much always going to be digital now so why should we create that divide it's just marketing again let's just talk about marketing again but yes i would argue yeah that it's great that the uk is still really at the forefront and and let's face it we have some fabulous creative agencies here and you know the output is always phenomenal and i guess 
against the backdrop of the pandemic, with quite a lot of people pushing back on budgets, it's great to see that there's been a massive growth. Any sort of reputation with regard to the creativity that uh, I certainly have seen since the 90s, and we've sustained that, you know, year on year, decade after decades. And, and I think for once, as a um, kind of made-in-UK type brand, we should give ourselves a tap on the back. You know, we, we are recognised and known for that creativity and how we can connect with an audience. Yeah. Very quickly, I've got two questions for you. Number one, um, you mentioned, of course, uh, NFTs a couple of weeks ago, if not even last week. So will you go ahead and access one of the 2,000-plus non-fungible tokens from Pepsi? But they are free, um, so that almost kind of goes against this principle of you buy it and you're the only one to own it. And would you have liked to spend a night on the original Home Alone uh, house as well? I know there's so much hype around these NFT things and whoever came up with the word non-fungible token needs to be struck off because I mean let's face it it's as bad as a non-profit endowment isn't it or uh, it's just come up they could have come up with something so much more uplifting and but non-fungible token for goodness sake it sounds something to do with rank mushrooms doesn't it or something like that if they're free yeah i might i mean i i I think we have to understand their place but i still think at the moment it's one of these just great big hyped up shiny toy things interlaced with quite a lot of greed as well it was interesting i saw um um, an actor on TV the other day was asked about NFTs and he just absolutely pissed himself laughing uh, for about 30 seconds. He was just laughing and he just then looked at the camera and says, it's total bullshit. <laughs> and, and whether you agree with him or not, it was a very funny moment, which just sort of summed up quite a lot of, uh, of the hype. Home Alone, it, it, one of the things I think is really quite interesting about Airbnb is if you do want to do a deep dive is all the really cool places you can find so yeah you could stay in the original home alone home but you can also stay in you know nuclear fallout shelters or even nuclear missile launching tubes and stuff like that so yes i wouldn't mind staying in the whole home alone house but actually if you do the deep dive into airbnb you can find some much more fascinating or gun emplacements on cliff tops or something like that which i think would probably be much more interesting to stay in the, the reason i chose that airbnb news is because i think uh, we've mentioned them quite a few times in the news with that kind of pr stunt and um, there was one you may remember where you could stay in the very last blockbusters on earth, you know, spend an evening with your friends watching movies yeah. on VHS cassettes and eating a pizza. And I think for me, it's about this idea of piggybacking. So if you're a brand and you can be a personal brand, you have to be a, a big brand, you know that this is an option. You could run a competition for your clients to spend literally an evening in the McAllister's house and use that also to kind of elevate, you know, your, your visibility. So I think sometimes it's also observing what others do for inspiration. But sometimes yeah. a bit of uh, news jacking, which I know is the term that they, they use in the US, can go some way to just get uh, something out there. So listen, thank you again for your reaction to the news. Everyone out there, if you want to let us know what you think of this Netflix, Spotify kind of announcement, what do you think about Instagram putting parental controls? What do you think about TikTok? I think are showing their true colors and becoming a bit of a TV channels by, by extension. And also, let us know if you've been one to access one of the free non-fungible tokens from Pepsi. Um, back to what I said also last time about the artwork 
that goes with NFT. I just still think um, Roger that is bloody ugly. I just don't get it. But you know, <laughs> I, I think with regard to the NFTs and the, the cryptocurrency, it's becoming very tribal, which is just fascinating to observe. Shall we slow things down and move on to the content spotlights? Yeah. Now, this is usually one of the highlights of Two Geeks and Marketing podcasts. When we share a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video. So, Roger, what are you bringing to the virtual table today? Okay, Pascal, this is a gloriously, beautifully simple idea. And it's an article in Inc. magazine. The heading is, starting a business? Use this old school tactic to jumpstart your brand. This simple technique catapulted the second largest boutique hotel company in the world, and it can work for your business too. Now, it's written by Nicholas Sonnenberg, and it's a really short article, but again, it's one of those beautifully simple ones that can really make you think. Now, Pascal, a couple of times in my career, I've been involved in a startup brand and it's a really exciting position to be in um, to actually start something from scratch and I was fortunate at the time that the business that I was in at the start had quite a lot of money to spend on a massive global branding agency to come in and do all the usual stuff about interviewing the people about what the goals are what the vision is what the product's going to be what the culture of the business is and you sort of describe the business and some of the words that you want to use and and out of all of those meetings they start to come up with you know a logo and a color scheme and 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 uh mission and values and all of those sorts of things and you know you can spend hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds and dollars on that sort of branding exercise and I'm not saying that all a brand is is just a logo and a, and a color scheme. You know, we all know that, but we haven't really got time to go into that in too much detail today. But this article is almost saying, you know, if you haven't got that sort of money, you can approximate what you're trying to do very easily by using this simple technique. And what Nicholas does is he is I mean he's effectively referring to a guy called Chip Conley, who has been in various places as a founder of Joy de Vivre Hospitality. He's been working in Airbnb, which we've already mentioned today. And this guy came up with this very simple idea of coming up with a brand identity for his business. And that is to choose a magazine that your ideal customer would probably be reading and then follow that with a series of descriptive words adjectives say that would effectively evoke the culture that you want to put around that brand and he was a he uses the example chip Conley uses the example of the phoenix hotel which is one of the largest boutique hotels in the united in the united states and the magazine that encapsulates that brand is rolling stone magazine and the adjectives are funky irrelevant sorry irreverent not irrelevant, irreverent, adventurous, cool, and young at heart. And that's it. And actually, if you look at the hotel website, you can see all of that. You can see Rolling Stone magazine encapsulated in the visuals and that sort of thing. And I can just imagine those words 
actually resonating with the customers and the staff who work for that hotel chain. And and that's pretty much the, the whole part point of the article. He then just goes down to actually see if he can talk you through that for your own brand. But it really is just as simple as picking a magazine and then following it up with some statements about what you're about. And you've pretty much created the image or the or the the blueprint for your brand so i thought what'd be interesting now i've just explained that to you in two and a half minutes or whatever it was if i was to throw that back at you now on the spot and we haven't rehearsed this at all pascal what would two geeks in a marketing podcast magazine be and what would be a couple of adjectives that you would describe our brand as go oh this is wonderful um the first thing that comes to mind because of our, what you and I do, which is that juxtaposition of the world of marketing and the world of filmmaking, I think it will be the Red Bull magazine. The name, the title escapes me, but this is the one that um, people refer to. And I would say the objective would be inventive and friendly. That would be the two that comes to mind. It put me on the spot, so this is what I'm coming up with. Well, I would agree with that. When I did this, my first, and I, and I always try to break the rules, so I actually had two magazines that came into my head, Empire Magazine, because of film marketing, and Marketing Week, which we refer to quite often in our deliberations. But I would agree with you. Challenging was another word I would probably have used. Fun, uh, reflective, empathy, but all of those things are absolutely relevant. But what a great little exercise that is. And I think that anybody listening to the show would just be able to do that for themselves. And you come up with the title of the magazine and a few of those words, and you've almost encapsulated your brand straight away. I'm so impressed with this. It's one of the best and most simplest ideas I've seen for ages. I can tell that you're impressed with it. I'm very <laughs> pleased. But I'm also thinking, oh, my goodness. This will have taken this gentleman probably years and decades to understand because very often what we do, it can be intuitive or it could be iterations with supporting other startups and, and brands. And can you imagine being the facilitator of that workshop within an organization, whether you bring with you actual hard copy of the magazines or you go online or you set them on their way to come back the next day with their ideas of the magazines and and those objectives, and then just cut your spot on the team. What I love about it is that you and I can actually see that behind these simple techniques lies, like I say, years and not decades of experience, but actually is cutting through many of the um, kind of steps and iterations that you've mentioned with regard to the accepted kind of brand development workshop that you and I've gone through, which, by the way, I've got very fond memories of. But when you're a startup and when speed of execution is key, this simple technique, as you mentioned, uh, I'm just blown away. And and something <laughs> that I didn't realize I, I would have used myself when I refer to a film or whatever. And I'm sure that others listening, watching this, are right now applauding you for discovering this little gem, Roger. So we're going to move on from the longest title of the shortest article to the reverse. <laughs> I've got for you probably the shortest title ever or one of the longest video documentary ever produced. I want to talk to you about recently published on Disney Plus, The Beatles Get Back. 
the three-part documentary directed by Peter Jackson using 1969 footage recorded over four weeks by Michael Lindsay Hogg and his colleagues, which led to the very famous public performance on the roof of the building in London. And I was torn about mentioning the Beatles get back of the documentary, Peter Jackson and so on, but then I realised, well, actually, you've mentioned Genesis quite a few times on this show, so I should be allowed to mention the, the Beatles. And the reason why it is included, uh, all of you, on Content Spotlight is whether or not you like the Beatles. This is a lesson in content creation. This is for all of us to relate to the anguish of being a content creator and what will the public say about our work. And this is also observing the work of for the most iconic uh, music composers, singers, and, and rock stars over the course of nearly t uh, 10 hours. I think it was just under nine hours, roughly. And I'll be honest with you, Roger, when I began watching this, I thought, watch for an hour, and that'll be done. And I watched all three <laughs> in one Sunday. And that's a lot of time spent watching because on one hand, you are in awe and completely kind of, um, I don't know, I can't think of the term, but watching, you know, uh, those four guys in superb quality image and sound because, of course, Peter Jackson with um, Weta Workshops and the others have rendered the 1969 footage to suit, you know, the, the big screen. But to see them talking, to see them arguing, to see them disagreeing, but coming up with the um, the song, so and, and the way Peter Jackson done it is almost like a um, you know we know where the end is, which is the famous performance on the roof, but the journey there, where they literally give themselves the better part of let's be frank three to four weeks to come up with between fourteen to twenty songs, and they have no songs when they first get together, and you see them, for example, having to change environment because where they start is not good enough. You see them having to actually agree that they are disorganized and they could do with a team leader. You hear them disagreeing with which song will go where. But there's one moment which I must say is, is the highlight, you know, because it's called The Beatles Get Back, is the way in which Paul McCartney comes up with the song Get Back. It literally gave me a spinball to see uh, literally genius at work. Um, and the other thing that I will say, which is also part of the lesson of The Beatles Get Back, is that the futility, the futility of seeking perfection. <laughs> it's, I mean, like you say before, not everybody is a massive fan of the Beatles. And I've never really been a massive fan of the Beatles. Having said that, we did review a film on um, two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, and I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the film, but it was the one where there's been some sort of natural disaster, and everybody had forgotten about the Beatles, but this oh, guy... yesterday. Still, it was called Yesterday, was it? Well, of course it had to be called Yesterday, didn't it? I should have known of that. But that, that film was just absolutely glorious um, as a celebration of music and as a celebration of the Beatles. So I think that even people who aren't massive fans of the Beatles themselves can always find enjoyment when somebody creates something that's really interesting. And this does sound interesting. Now, from what you've said, Pascal, I, I'm, I've, I've actually been under a misconception as to what actually happened here. I thought this was all 
done by actors and that Peter Jackson had basically cast people as Paul McCartney and, and um, Ringo Starr and all of that. So this is real footage that he's got and he's remastered it into glorious 4K or whatever it is. No, I hadn't realised that. I thought that this was all this was all stuff that he'd shot. And if you think that spending nine hours in the companies of the famous four is long, think about it that Peter Jackson had access to over 80 hours of video footage and hundreds of hours of audio-only footage. This is essentially a vlogging, as we would call it, but done in 1969, where they were pretty much in agreement that this would be the last time that we would work together and then we'd go, then go their separate ways. Out of, obviously, their work in the space of three to four weeks came out the the tracks, you know, for Abbey Road, if I'm not mistaken, and let it be. But real Beatles fan will, will know that better than that. And for me, listening and watching it, it was more... I kept thinking, oh, my God, I'm listening to John Lennon having a chat with Ringo. I, I, I mean, because my only experience, like many others, has been the music and nothing else. And to see them behaving, I mean, if it wasn't for the fight, you know, the, the haircuts and what they're wearing, you don't, you can't tell that it's 1969. And then if you have some minor interest in audio or video production, you just look at the kit that they've got. It's pretty, pretty amazing. One thing that surprised me, though, so, you know, this is the Beatles at, at the height of their popularity and their fame. And here they are in different studios uh, to trying to come up with, with, with the famous songs that we know. And all they do all day long, Roger, is eat slices of toast and drink tea. And I was thinking, all right, if I was that famous and that rich, I would have a bit more than that. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I mean, you know, what people's impressions are. I'd, I didn't think they'd be sat there eating toast and drinking tea. I thought that they'd have been snorting Coke and drinking lots and lots of cocktails. But hey, that's just the image that sometimes you get. I mean, what really interests me about all of this is what must these cameras have been like that they were shooting themselves on? I mean... This is 1969. You know, we didn't have camcorders or mobile phones. There must have been some fairly heavy-duty kit in that room, which presumably needed to be have its film replaced. I mean, it was. I'm sure, was it, it must have actually been film because I don't even think videotape existed. Well, maybe it did, but it must have been very primitive, very thick, wide stuff. So the, the, what was recording them must have been gigantic cameras. Indeed, yeah. I mean the the real you know creator Michael Lindsay Hogg and his colleagues, they actually have a conversation about you know the, the footage and the film they're using, the, the microphone they're using, and every so often you know you see Paul McCartney or you know uh, Ringo saying, oh, "Are you still filming us?" Yeah, yeah, I'm still filming. Yeah. you. I'm literally going to track you for you know for the next few weeks, and eventually they, they forget them, they get used to it. Um, like I said, it, it's just an amazing lesson in the life of being a content creator. And all of us, I mean, literally, I was relating, thinking, yeah, I have days like this. Absolutely right. I have days when I need a, I need a clear plan. I can't just turn up on the day and think we're, we're going to make it. And, and I think for me, you know, th these were the two lessons. The need, need for a, a, a leader, somebody else, than the famous four to to be really driving through and meeting deadlines and so on, but also which is I think that the um, the core message in the last part, you know, the three part, is this idea of seeking perfections and re recording. Let it be, I mean, countless number of times where in fight the, by the fourth time they got it, and and you have on occasion 
text overlay that says, in fact, that was the trial I was using the album, even though they tried 20, 30 times to, uh, <laughs> to get it better. Yeah. And that was no pun intended at the end of that sentence either. <laughs> it wasn't at all. All right. This has been absolutely delightful. And But let's move on to marketing tech and apps. Yeah. Okay, Roger, what have you found that could make life easier as a content marketer and entrepreneur? This is more like what can make things easier for us just as people, just us as people. Now, I mentioned that I was down at this conference in London last week, and it was so good to be back in a room with real people. And one of the talks, one of the speeches was all about marketing tech and apps, which was great. And I, 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 I sort of don't apologize for this, but this is totally random what I'm going to do this week. This person put up on the screen a load of random apps that they thought were doing really good jobs. And it didn't really matter what industry they were in. It was just that they were coming up with innovative ideas, but they'd also branded themselves in quite an attractive and quite an interesting way. And two of these caught my attention so much that I actually went and did a bit of research on them and thought, I'm going to bring them to the table for the marketing tech and apps section of the next show, even though technically they're not really to do with marketing themselves, but obviously you can appreciate the marketing that actually goes around them. So the first one has got the most joyous name, Pascal. It's called Blah Blah Car. Blah Blah Car. And, and the logo, obviously, as you can imagine, has got a sort of automobile feel to it, but Blah Blah Car. And this is an app that allows people to effectively create carpooling journeys. So if I wanted to, if I knew that I was going to drive from Edinburgh to Newcastle, I could actually post that on Blah Blah Car and somebody else who's wanting to go from Edinburgh to Newcastle could apply to join me in my car and obviously make a donation to the cost of the petrol and, and this, that and the other. And I guess that given where we are in the world at the moment with global warming and talk about you know moving to um, more sustainable energy and that sort of thing this sort of thing really does make sense you know if you are driving somewhere and there's just you you know it does make sense that you could perhaps get somebody to help you out with the costs of that and to cut carbon em emissions by having two people or more in the car so i just love that idea but the branded execution of this blah blah car it really does it really is quite special they also do buses as well but the, from the work i've looked from the research i've done i think the the, the bus journeys actually only work in um in your in france actually france and spain from what i can work out but maybe that will eventually come to to the uk the second one again the branding on this is beautiful and this is called task rabbit Task Rabbit. Now, we've all heard of Fiverr, and, and Fiverr is phenomenally successful. And, and, and obviously, Fiverr is more about design and, and things like that. So you can go onto Fiverr and ask somebody to create you a logo or to do you a voiceover or, or create you a cover for a book. And they'll come back and, you know, you might get it for a Fiverr or you might get it for £20 or £40, depending upon how much you want to spend. Well, TaskRabbit is a similar idea, except it's for stuff that you need doing at home. So you need an emergency spring clean of your house, or you need somebody to hang a load of pictures up, or you need somebody to decorate your house. Now, 
you might say, well, why wouldn't I just go to a decorator or why wouldn't I go to somebody who can put paint, put pictures up? Well, it's just another method of, uh, of finding people to help you. And maybe there's a cost effectiveness built into this. Now, my initial reaction to this was, oh, is it not a bit dodgy? You know, you could, I could put myself on there and say I'm an expert painter when in fact, you know, I can't even draw a straight line without a ruler. But they do have checks in place, so it is legit. But again, it's such a beautifully branded idea. And the, the, the name TaskRabbit, I just, as soon as I saw it, I thought, well, that's just got to be successful. So totally random, I'm afraid, Pascal, but they entertained me no end. And I did take a screenshot of that slide that the person put up. So I might drop a few more of these in over the next few episodes because some of them really, really lit up the room, I have to say. It's Fascinating. And, and I think you're right. You know, why wouldn't we do random selections as well as part of marketing tech and apps? Uh, what is interesting about Blah Blah Car, as you pointed out, it is a French company. And ah. for, the first time I heard about it was actually two months ago when I was in France. I was talking about trying to, to go to, to a meeting and, and we only had one car. And then he's had to go uh, to the shops, I think, and I had to go somewhere else. And, and my uncle say, why don't you use blah blah car and i had no idea what he what he was talking about because i think generally is it is a french app and then now they've extended into to the uk so i think back to your point about learning i think it'd be fascinating to observe what is the, the french website uh, in terms of design and layout and indeed social media and what is the uk execution is there been some you know slight changes to obviously meet the um, kind of uh, let's say english or british sensitivities in terms of colors mm. style and design but yeah blah blah car um first time i heard it i thought it was um some form of a song or something i had no idea what, what it was <laughs> and the idea being back to your point which is if you you know take part in a carpooling journey you have a chat and keep each other entertained and, and whatever. I think um, Task Rabbit is, is fascinating because what what those two apps do really is around networking and connections and a sense mm. of community, and uh, and I think that'll be a good one to, to look at as well. So so for my part, I was inspired by a recent webinar that that, that I gave in the round going live on social media. And I was delivering my presentation, actually the one that uh, I gave two years to the day at the Upreneur Summit around the power of visual storytelling. And I think there was a, an element of remarketing that took place. It had to be because I did a research. And then, of course, my inbox and my Facebook streams are full of adverts. But there was one that really caught my eye from a company called Sennheiser, who are specialized specialists in audio. And Sennheiser, actually my very first microphone was a Sennheiser, released the MKE200 tripod kit. So there's already lots of letters and numbers to get you confused. But in, what you get in the kit, which is really quite impressive, is that directional microphone, the Sennheiser, I think, microphone, which means that it's is picking up only your voice and excluding all the noise around you, particularly if you're going to be out and about. You have then the clamp and you have a Manfrotto tripod. So all those three things will fit around your mobile phone. 
and you are on your way to record some content to then be edited and published or to go live on social media. I know that you have yourself a Manfrotto tripod, if I'm not mistaken, and this is a super bit of kit. I've put the link in the show notes for Amazon just for convenience, but I will shop around because the prices do vary, but I would be very, very surprised if you spend more than £90 for the microphone, the smartphone clamp, and the tripod. Now, once you have the recording, whether it was a live session, whether it was pre-recorded, what do you do with it? I want to bring back to Marketing Tech and Apps, uh, Roger, Anchor.fm. It was mentioned quite some time ago. But as good things, like a good bottle of wine, they have improved with age. They were bought by Spotify 18 months ago, uh, give or take, which allowed the platform to grow and provide more features. But here's the thing. Anchor.fm started life as a podcasting platform. It will now also publish your video content on Spotify. So here's the thing. You're going to record your session, your interview, whatever it might be, using the Sennheiser tripod kit. The video file is then published on Anchor, and then your audio only and your video files will be available on Spotify, the global kind of uh, podcasting and now video casting platform. So I think that's a nice little thing to do you know, for, for your business. Yeah, I actually noticed recently on Spotify, Pascal, even when I'm listening to Genesis or, or whoever it might be, this, when you play a track, some of them have now are actually now playing the music video in the background, whereas before it's always just been a you know a static graphic of an album cover or a, a single cover. But I have noticed, and it's only recently, maybe in the last three or four weeks, that they have started playing music videos, which I actually think might actually give um, YouTube a bit of a run for its money in that respect. But yeah. Good kit there, the Sennhauser, and of course the Manfrotto Pixie is exactly the mini tripod that I use with my own um, audio stuff. Superb selection. So, but let's remind ourselves that BlaBlaCar, TaskRabbit, Sennheiser, and all the others, none of this would be possible without the pioneers and visionaries of the recent and distant past. Roger, it is time to go to This Week in History. In 1916, Arthur C. Clarke is born on the 16th of December, best remembered as a science fiction author, futurist and inventor and the host of TV shows such as Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Well, in 1939, Gone with the Wind, drama film directed by Victor Fleming and starring Clark Gable and Vivian Lee premieres in Atlanta. It will win the Oscar for Best Picture a year later. In 1946, It's a Wonderful Life is released and would be unsuccessful at the box office. It then became a classic Christmas film after it was put into the public domain, which allowed it to be broadcast without licensing or royalty fees. Wow. Well, in 1977, the Queen unveils the new underground link from central London to Heathrow, the first from the capital city to its major airport. 1977. Yeah. I'm not sure how to feel about it. Um, a, it feels <laughs> like it should have been sooner. But also, once again, a first for the UK. Yeah, I know. And I think that's why I chose this particular news item, because I hadn't realised that 
Heathrow was the first airport to have a rail link to its its capital city. Uh, you know, I just assumed that it would be New York or, or, or something like that, uh, which just, it just goes to show. But if you think about it now, I mean, that, that, that wasn't, as you say, as, as early as you thought. I would have said early 60s maybe, but 1977. Um, but if you think about what we have now, we have the Heathrow Express. Soon we're going to have the uh, the, the, the Elizabeth line, the over, the overground, whatever that's called, um, and obviously all the motorways and all the paraphernalia that goes into Heathrow. But it, it started with nothing other than a major road going to it. And look at look where we are now. So another example of early start and uh, where you know massive modern uh, projection for me the, what, what is interesting is uh, with the rail transport i know that over time france and england have been head to head about who's going to be innovating first who's going to be doing things differently but there is it's that legacy issue it, it breaks my heart to think that the um United kingdom pretty much led the way in terms of engineering and design of rail transport and railways around the world but because of that we've got now a really an ancient system mm. that you know mm. we we as in the society is having real trouble to bring back to 21st century and and that's just you know history that's what that's what happens but it's always just that think of where we, we were first to do that but then 40 50 70 years later you kind of stuck with that legacy issue which is always so tragic isn't it it absolutely is. It absolutely is. In, in my house, we had lots of Arthur C. Clarke books uh, alongside um, Isaac Asimov and another one which uh, named the name escapes me, uh, Philip Kadic, and obviously translated in French. I remember I used to love it because you were so uh, focused on the people, you know, the situation of people. And there was one that stayed with me forever, which is uh, people uh, living on the moon. And it's a story of a... Um, I suppose a hovercraft who's providing a tour of some of the craters of the moon that crashes and the survival of those inside the hovercraft where oxygen is, is going down and that kind of thing. And I always thought that would make such a wonderful film because, again, the sense of jeopardy and so on. But what he could do so well is with his many TV interventions, whether he was a guest on the panel or when he was hosting, he was able to really keep things simple and make it sound a very accessible. You could understand and you could imagine what he was describing to you. He was also, as mentioned in your uh, little summary, a futurist. He was able to join the dots and predict what um, would happen in 20, 10, 20 years' time, using logic, and also uh, his claim to fame. Am I right in thinking that he was the first one to at least draw the the beginning of the first satellite, communication satellites that we're using nowadays? I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, you're right about the fact that he could explain things. Interesting. I always remember the Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Um, again, fascinating program because what he was able to do was to create, because he had that intellectual scientific brain but he was also able to condense it into stuff that we could understand on tv so i always thought that he was a good communicator from that point of view that'd be someone you would want to have around your house one evening just let him talk <laughs> just give him a glass of of sherry or whiskey whatever he likes and let him just entertain you wow this has been really really enjoyable roger but let's get back into the present with our creator shout outs 
So, Roger, who is under the spotlight this week? This week, I'm going to talk about LinkedIn, Pascal. And I know there are lots of LinkedIn experts out there. Louise Brogan, somebody we've spoken about on the show before. John Aspirian, we've spoken about on the show before. But I want to give a shout out to Angus Grady today. Now, Angus is... um, a really interesting person because he's not one of these guys who pushes courses on how to be successful on LinkedIn and, you know, the usual looking at the algorithm and, and all of that sort of thing. And Angus also is very critical of those people who play the connect and direct message game. Angus is a bit old school. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if I described him and, and lumped him in with myself and says I, he's one of the older marketers out there at the moment and the thing is he absolutely subscribes to some old-fashioned types of communication and when i say old-fashioned i don't mean that in a derogatory sense this guy advocates talking to people so obviously you can do that on linkedin now that you've got these audio messages but he's actually the sort of person who will try to get the telephone number of people who want to connect with him so he can actually have a telephone conversation with them. I mean, how amazing is that? Who these days thinks about a telephone conversation as the first priority? And Angus also advocates connecting with people on LinkedIn and then sending them something by post. I mean, snail mail, Pascal. Now, again, you might be thinking, oh, in the digital world, why are we bothering with voices and why are we bothering with with, um, post? But it makes you stand out. And, you know, we do get inundated with digital messages from all over the place these days, not just in LinkedIn, but from all over. And what Angus is really good at doing is good old-fashioned networking. But he's adapted those processes of making telephone calls, sending postcards, sending letters, whatever it might be, to fit into that digital world. And you know what? It absolutely works. So he uses the um, the byline, the LinkedIn unlocker, and he really is a different way of doing LinkedIn um, networking. And I think it really, really works. So check him out. I've included the um, Angus Grady link on LinkedIn, the URL in the show notes. Check him out. He does it differently and it seems to be working. Superb selection. I think you're right. There's too much of uh, this idea of uh, I push a message out and I wait for things to happen. And, and I think networking is a technique and discipline that you just need to be a bit more curious about or sometimes remind yourselves of what used to work because it's still working. We just got ourselves maybe uh, taken on, on the on the, on the sideways uh, track. So for me, it's, this week it's about the second appearance of the shout out. Our good friend Mark Asquith, the co-founder of Captivate.fm, the platform that we use to publish and broadcast Two Geeks and Martin podcasts. But the reason for Mark's second appearance is because very recently. He's published all the episodes of his Seven Minute Mentor audio series. And it's a series that's been going for quite some time. And the reason for that is that he felt he needed a dedicated uh, kind of destination. So the website, the sevenminutementor.com, is now live where you can all of you access 607 episodes in and around building a brand, launching a podcast, and being a small business owner. 
So to begin with, Roger, uh, what an achievement. 607. And I know that, you know, Mark is also a very astute marketer. Of course, he had to finish on the number seven. But that is just an achievement. <laughs> it's also, for me, a reminder that with regard to content creation and audio creation, you can do what you want. And if a micro-content production, which is in this case is seven minutes, is what you should do, then do that. But importantly, stay the course and keep going for, I think in this case, for many, many years indeed. So for me, it's twofold. It's just a lesson in finding your way and finding your voice in the run micro-content. It's also making life easier for your audience with a dedicated website, but it's also celebrating a round of applause for what is quite uh, a, a volume of content, 607 episodes. We'll let him off the seven, I think, um, because that'll only be the case until the next one comes along. And then, of course, it won't be a seven anymore. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Pascal. And I, I actually look at my own podcast, the Marketing and Finance podcast, of which I'm now up to episode 280. I probably need to think about a similar dedicated resource rather than it just being a page on my website, or at least I need to do some cataloging of all the subjects and cross-reference all the uh, different topics that have appeared over the course of many, many years, which is exactly what Mark's done here. Super. So to Angus and Mark, thank you for the inspiration. Really, really appreciated. Roger Edwards, it is now time for Film Marketing. Now, every so often, Roger, there is a movie that surpasses all expectation when it comes to its achievement, but also its accolades and reputation. The King's Speech is one of those movies that have completely redefined the world of storytelling and indeed how you go about marketing a low-budget independent production. Let's remind ourselves about the King's Speech watching his trailer. My husband is, um, well, he's required to speak publicly. I have received. <laughs> Perhaps he should change jobs. And what of my husband with a king? My husband has seen everyone. Insert them into your mouth. Enunciate. He hasn't seen me. I can cure your husband, but I need total trust. What was your earliest memory? I'm not here to discuss personal matters. Well, why are you here, then? Because I bloody well stammer! But do you know any jokes? Timing isn't my strong suit. <laughs> your methods are unorthodox and controversial. <laughs> Up comes your royal highness. It's actually quite good fun. Yes. <laughs> art thou feared? It's your peculiar. I take that as a compliment. War with Germany will come. And we will need a king whom we can all stand behind. He's afraid of his own shadow. The nation believes that when I, I speak, I speak for them. But I can't speak. You could do it. You needn't be governed by fear. It should be like mad King George the Stammer. Get up. You can't sit there. Get up. Why not? It's a chair. That is that is St. Edward's chair. People have that, carved their names Listen to me! Listen to me! Why should I waste my time listening to you? Because I have a voice! Yes, you do. Your greatest test 
is yet to come. What's he say? I don't know, but he seems to be saying it rather well. Your first wartime speech. Broadcast to the nation and the world. This great time of crisis. However this turns out, I don't know how to thank you. Bertie, you're the bravest man I know. I intend to be a very good queen. To a very great king. Forget everything else and just say it to me. Wow. This brings back such memories. Now, I saw the King's Speech, Roger, very late. I actually bought the DVD when it first came out, and it was on my shelf forever, it would seem. And one day I went, I must watch this. And, and of course, like many others around the world, I was not disappointed. Do you remember seeing the King's Speech? I was like you. We didn't go to see it at the cinema. We got it out on Blu-ray when it was first released, bought it pretty much straight away, by which time its reputation was just global, wasn't it? And it had already um, been nominated and, and won so many awards. And, you're, you know, you described right at the start that it's one of those sort of low-budget films that comes around every so often that, absolutely knocks it out of the park in pretty much every respect storytelling um acting a you know the cast the atmosphere whatever it is and this is this is one of those films like the full monty and um, slum dog millionaire and billy elliot sort of low budget british films with traditionally um, recognisable British actors, but it's maybe it's something to do with that sort of the Britishness of it and the absolutely incredibly character-driven scripts combined with that incredible acting. I mean, none of these are action films that I've mentioned. They're all character pieces, aren't they? Really quite in-depth character pieces, but it's the drama of it and the passion of the actors and the believability of the situations that absolutely raises these films above so many others and that was what you get with the king's speech is just sucked in by incredible performances you're absolutely right this is probably the first time that i found myself relating to forgive me a king i mean this is a story of uh, yeah. king george the sixth who having to face two well two uh, quite extraordinary events the second world war but also for him to have to deliver a speech in which he declares that the United Kingdom will be at war against Nazi Germany. And you're absolutely right. We see his evolution. I mean, this is obviously a movie that uses the Mattermost Forces kind of story element, but told in a way that is so human that, um, I mean, his wife, Queen Elizabeth, um, in terms of, you know, the relationship there. But I also, you know, found myself warming to the relationship between uh, the character of Jeffrey Rush and Jennifer Ely, um, Lionel Log and Myrtle Log, and mm. also discovered, of course, an aspect of British history that didn't know anything. So you are absolutely right. It was so relatable, despite the fact that they are essentially people who are the monarchy. And of course, somebody that has come from Australia to settle in in England. And yes, to, to me, it was also, I, was, I kept thinking, yeah, I know those feelings, you know, public speaking. Yeah, I know those feelings. I wanted to get it right. But what I don't know is the feeling of duty to the point at which, you know, Colin Firth was, was mentioning it because, of course, he um, was younger, the younger you know, sibling, 
and, and his brother had abdicated and he suddenly he was thrust into this idea of being first in line and first on the throne after the, the death of his father. So it was all, all those layers that was superbly mm. managed by Tom Hooper, the director, and of course his crew and cast. And you mentioned very briefly the, the choice they made around the sets, one of the colours, one of the costumes. That is exactly what British film production does so well. Yeah, it's always, you know, and we mentioned before the Full Monty, that was that was Sheffield um, post-Steel, wasn't it? And, 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 and Slumdog Millionaire had a completely different view and feel as well. But it's those details that British independent films are so well known for. I guess what impressed me the most about this is that, let, let's face it, the monarchy exists in this sort of elite stratosphere, doesn't it? But they managed to humanise this character of, of the king. And let, let, let's face it, a lot of people don't really know the story. Um, and this will be them coming to it at the first time. And I think that the interplay between Colin Firth and Geoffrey Rush, and of, and of course, I always think of Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy or <laughs> um, somebody out of Love Actually. And, and I think of Geoffrey Rush as Captain Barbosa out of, out of the Pirates of the Caribbean film. And then he is Geoffrey Rush, very well-spoken Australian gentleman in an incredibly smart cut suit. And yet the interplay between him, I mean, he doesn't take any shit from the king. And that's probably a good thing because anybody, any lesser character would have probably not stood up to the king enough to actually get the king to do what he needed to do. And that, and it's that interplay that, you know, every scene that those two were in are instantly rewindable and, and watchable again. I think that you're right, that mentor-mentee relationship is so yeah. well executed, but also back to the side of the choice of um, framing, the choice of colours and music, the evolution of the anguish found by mm -hmm. King George VI until eventually he delivers that speech. But what is what is very, well, he's played so well, and we must celebrate the work of the writer, clearly, and the yeah. director, is Geoffrey Rush will take on Colin Firth, the king, but he also scared by his wife. Remember the scene when his wife doesn't know that he's working for the king and the queen, and they are working in his studio, and his wife, uh, played by Jennifer Healy, Myrtle, comes back early from the shops. And, well, I can, I'm can i sure that husbands and partners around the world can relate to the look. And <laughs> she gives him the look, do you remember? And yeah. <laughs> we realised, well, yeah, Jeffrey Rush can take on the king, but we'll still be quite worried about what he's going to get an earful from his wife after he's gone. <laughs> and to me, that there was some very, very human moment, um, sometimes comedic moment, which I think sometime led the marketing team slightly astray. We're going to come talking about mm. this because, of course, you and I, as people can tell, we are praising this film. We've enjoyed it thoroughly. But its journey from completion to, to the Oscars wasn't straightforward. Uh, and you could argue that its success came much, much later. So from memory, it was produced and filmed in the early part of 2010, then it was pretty much finished in the autumn of 2010. But it wasn't until spring to summer 2021, 2011, should I say, that the world really got behind the film. Yeah, and and just just kudos again, just reinforcing that that the the writer David Seidler had actually had the same stutter problem, the same speech problem as the King did, 
And it was him listening to the King's broadcasts back, you know, in, in wartime that inspired him to overcome his own stuttering problem. So in a way, when he was writing this screenplay, yes, he was writing about the King, but he was also probably building in a sort of autobiographical element to it as well. And I'm sure that some of the emotions and the feelings that were in the screenplay were actually the writer's own feelings as to how he felt about his own speech problem in the same way as he was telling the story of the king. Uh, so, yeah. Sorry, and for me, that brings back this idea of, you know, good fortune and fair wind, you know, when you make, mm. a, make a film. So you had that element as well, which led to actually David Sidler winning the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay at the age of 74, mm. which is quite an achievement. But another kind of uh, alignment of the planet was that the grandson of the real Lionel Log discovered a box in the attic containing his grandfather's papers and notes yeah. when he was working with the king. And he actually donated, or Atlanta would imagine, the, the documentation to the filmmakers so they could make it even more real. And allegedly in the box was the speech with the notes and the, the, the kind of the, the advice given by Lionel to, to the king. So there are a lot of things that went, you know, that were in the right place for, for this film to do well. Yeah, and let's face it, we've already said it was a low-budget film. I think overall, the production costs were around about £9 million, and yet it grossed $236 million worldwide. And then, of course, in equal millions from sales of DVDs, Blu-rays, and, and, and repeats, and all of that sort of thing. And I think that because all the actors effectively took profit shares in the film, they all, they, a lot of them were taking home huge windfalls as a result of the absolutely amazing success of the film. But before it was successful, they had very little to pay, to spend on marketing. And, you know, apart from the trailer and apart from the, the film posters, and there were quite a few different iterations of the posters, which we can maybe just talk a little bit about, but apart from the poster and the trailer, they really struck gold because they launched the film around about the time of a few of the um, major film festivals. And the media just absolutely fell in love with it, grabbed hold of it and just went absolutely atmospherically happy and positive and, you know, couldn't heap enough praise on the film. And that excitement and that praise just spread around the world and and that's why it became this must-see film. So it was really a word-of-mouth marketing, if then this really, rather than any specific campaign. I think for me it's so typical of indie film production, that word mm. of mouth, you know. Sometimes the word the word viral marketing is used, but unfortunately people think of immediately social media. Mm. This was two thousand eleven, very different times anyway. But more importantly, back to your point, even if they they'd had access to division to a website and to social media, this this was ten years ago and you could not have you know, establish that, that positioning and protection of the movie by just your own efforts. You had to use the power of others. And there isn't one newspaper, magazine, not one TV channel or radio station that did not mention the film in some ways. When we think about what about marketing, one thing they did really, really well, I, I suspect in agreement with the investors and the producers, they allowed everyone 
that were involved in the film, literally everyone, from the costume designers to the audio editor to the set, you know, everyone was able to speak about the film and were invited to speak about the film. And I will tell you, Roger, I don't think that we've seen that done in that way very often. And certainly in terms of movies we've reviewed, you and I, if you watch, for example, and can go and Google the articles, you will see different crew members and different cast members talking about the film happily. And I think, therefore, this, this expansion and this extension of the access to information by the film, including some of the um, disagreement maybe on the posters, which we're going to talk about, even revealing uh, the first choices of cast. So, for example, the, the director openly spoke, you know, as part of the, the word of mouth marketing, the fact that Paul Bettany was the first choice, but he was not available. And they went with Colin Firth. And all this kind of behind the scene and, and kind of the, um, the, the, the world of pre and, um, and production, I think has helped immensely as opposed to what people would do, which is to have maybe one, two messages that they just repeat over and over again, only delivered by a very, very small number of people. This is, a, this is such an important thing to say. I see it in big corporates all the time. You know, we are only allowed the official Twitter account. You're only allowed to say the official messages. But some of the companies that are more successful on social media are those ones that allow their staff to be ambassadors for the brand. And okay, the, there's probably some checks and balances going on in the background. But when it looks like the staff are also talking about everything and how passionate they are about working for that business, that company always stands out. And this is what happened with this film, as you say. Everybody was talking about it and nobody was being gagged. And therefore, it did feel so much more inclusive. And that's probably why it went so viral, because everybody was allowed to get involved. Uh, and I think it's only to the credit of, once again, the, the leaders of that crew and cast, because you're right, people probably worked longer hours for much lower pay than they would normally in the spirit of indie film production. And if you can't even allow the person who was in charge of maybe catering even to just be invited uh, on, on a podcast or radio show, you, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, one thing that made the, um, the headlines, I suppose you could argue, was very openly um, Tom Hopper, the, the, the director, was very, very unhappy um, with the first iteration of the poster. I mean, literally, that made the, the headline. And when you see the artwork, you can really understand why. I think one critic from a US magazine said it looked like someone would do that if they were selling you, um, essentially, rip-off copy of, of the, the movie. So you had this very, very strange kind of um, setting of the three main characters, um, but almost making it look like a comedy. Mm. And they had mm. this god-awful strapline of... When God could not save the queen, the que sorry. When God could not save the king, the queen turned to someone who could, and Tom Hooper went absolutely ballistic, thinking this is bad. This will not do. And instead, they went for a minimalistic uh, poster, which I think will um, please you. Simplicity, where we have the close-up of Colin Firth kind of um, mouth, then we have the old-fashioned BBC um, microphone. And we have a quote from the Wall Street Journal, which I think for anyone making movies, you would want someone to say that about your film. The quote on the poster, the one that they use for the festivals mentioned by you, Roger, says as follows. A film that makes your spirit soar, a rare combination of crowd pleaser 
and triumphant artistry. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the when God couldn't save the king, the queen turned to someone who could. That poster genuinely does look like a comedy, doesn't it? I mean, even Helena Bonham Carter's look in that poster is almost four weddings and a funerally in its in its uh, aspect. There is another poster as well, which you've just got Jeffrey Rush and, and Colin Firth in it, and that's that's similar but more official and that has a strap man it takes leadership to confront a nation's fear it takes friendship to conquer your own now that felt to me as if it was closer to what was required but ultimately i would agree with you i think the the one with the microphone and the and just the the person speaking into the microphone is the one that actually sums the film up best for me and, and I think that's the the thing. So when you go around the festivals and when you want to try and get the support from the media and film goers, because of course by then we have blogs and we have podcasts and so on, that's the artwork that you want. And a reminder that as often, as we said on this show, less is more. Uh, and this is just, and of course, you know, using third-party validation as is the case here. And then when the distributors take over after the many Oscar wins and BAFTAs and whatever, then the artwork and everything else changes because, of course, the the marketing machine from those big distributors take over. And I think the the one that you mentioned is probably the one that you have on the cover of a DVD or certainly one of, of that ilk. But yeah, I, I'm so pleased that we're in a position to praise word of mouth marketing but done well and with the full support of everyone involved in the movie and of course uh, media and audiences around the world yeah and then the next thing on my list now is to actually go and watch this film again <laughs> do you know i've not watched it again because literally it's so clear in my mind that i can replay the scenes you've mentioned you know uh, so so many times it's it's almost the kind of ultimate rags to riches story, but actually the person starts by being very rich, and it's the king, right? And yep. back to this idea of we can all relate because we've all been there before when we've been given a task to do, maybe sometime out of duty, and fear takes over, you know, and and the nerves takes over, and talk about imposter syndrome, and what you need, and in in this case, what what you need is is a partner to support you, a life partner, and then also an expert that comes along with a set of techniques and, and toolkits. Because, I mean, some of the um, the techniques that he learns, I'm absolutely convinced they are real, as in, you know, mm. David Sedler and many others would have uh, studied to that, not to... Because there's one thing that this film does really well is that you feel for the character, but you don't feel bad or you don't feel awkward. You know, I think that was really well played. And that's why I think it worked that the actual author had been through this whole thing himself. I think that is one of the reasons why the writing was so absolutely on point. So all of you, if you've not seen the King's speech, don't worry. You can. We've not spoiled anything. It's a bit like, forgive me uh, if I may use a completely different comparison at a different scale. It's like watching Titanic. You know the ending. But you, the story and the characters kind of you know, take you along. This is the same here. You know for a fact that the king will deliver the speech and will do a good job. Its journey from the start to beginning is just absolutely riveting. And it's just a pleasure that we've been able to speak about it with you, Roger. 
It's absolutely a pleasure. One of the one of the best film marketing chats we've had for a while. <laughs> Quite absolutely. So everyone, sadly, this is the end of episode sixty-two. Thank you once again for your amazing support. Please leave comments, suggestions in the usual places. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Mm-hmm.